1: Now, coming up on today's podcast, we were hoping to bring you uh, our latest focus group, but in the circumstances, that seems a bit weird. So what I thought we'd do is bring you just some of the best interviews from the Times radio show today on the terrible situation in Ukraine. So in a moment, we will hear from James Johnson, who carried out our latest focus group on what public opinion is on the situation in Ukraine. We'll also hear from a Welsh politician who's got family in Ukraine, a YouTuber who's currently in Ukraine, waving off her friends who are heading to the front line. And Times columnist Daniel Finkelstein talking about his family connections to Ukraine and uh, his sense of what Britain can or can't do in response to Vladimir Putin's invasion. But first as ever, we'll kick off with our columnist panel on a Thursday. It's the duo we call Night at the Marriott. This is India Knight and James Marriott. What's your sense this morning, India?
2: i 'm feeling pretty grim, too. I apologize by the way, for not you should have bumped us and got in i don't know professors of european history um we will be doing but, that um, as well we'll be doing that as well, but good, you know good, you're, good. you're part
1: you're part of the of the Times radio family and getting your 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 sense this morning. I think people appreciate I feel, that
2: I feel pretty sick and pretty horrified, and what i've been trying to do actually since I got up and started listening to the radio is i've been trying to gauge I know what the level of my horror is and the level of my appalledness I've been trying to gauge the level of my panic I mean should we be panicking should we be saddened and horrified or should we be you know running around like headless chickens going oh my god the world is caving in and that's where I'm I don't know I I mean I feel quite panicked but I don't know if I feel too panicked I keep hearing you know august generals on the radio saying this could end in complete carnage for the whole of Europe um, and I'm, I'm sort of trying to keep a lid on that and keep myself reasonably calm, but I don't see, I don't see how it ends is the, um, is the problem for me.
1: Well, let us know how you're feeling this morning. You can text me two site message with the word Times. You can tweet us at Times Radio. James, I suspect lots of people feel like India this morning. How do you feel this morning?
3: Yeah, I woke up and I mean, I went to bed with a deep sense of foreboding. I've been following it basically all of yesterday evening. And my, my sense was that kind of surreal feeling that, um, the world that I sort of, the peaceful, democratic, increasingly democratic world that I grew up thinking I was inhabiting um, just isn't actually really, really where we are. That was my main feeling. Um, It was the only time I felt this sort of shocked and just sort of amazed by a news event. I remember feeling the same way, um, waking up um, in the middle of the night for the election of Donald Trump and thinking, hang on, this isn't how the world is supposed to go. This isn't what I was told about it. I mean, it's just clear this is just a huge historical moment. This... Um the US withdrawal from Afghanistan um last year, these these two, you know, these two things are just sort of adding up to this real kind of the history is changing the tracks, I think, and this is sort of I mean, it feels like we're entering quite a dangerous period of, you know, the sort of um the decline of Western influence, the sudden power and terrifying importance of of these new sort of autocracies. I mean, China will obviously be watching all this very closely as well, is it not, not a particularly comforting thought?
2: I think, I think what's, what, what makes everything feel so much worse is the idea that keeps trotting around my head, which is that our principles of liberal democracy, the principles of liberal democracy that underpin our outrage, are not necessarily celebrated in the rest of the world. You know, James mentioned Donald Trump. I mean, they're not even celebrated in sizable chunks of America, really. So our assumption was always that China and Russia would rush to become liberal democracies, and it didn't happen and china is economically successful without it we never thought that would happen and so i really worry that what we might be talking here about the boundaries of liberal democracy um which is a really terrifying thought you know you have russia china south america africa india even you know all these places are fans of the strong man and liberal democracy can go take a hike.
1: And bound up in that. And I can see it through lots of the messages we're getting as people saying, well, you know, off the back of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and, mm. um, uh, you know, we've tried the going and you know, Libya is another one. We've tried the, you know, the the West strong man, but on the right side of history, going and imposing our li- views of liberal democracy on, on various parts of the world with catastrophic
2: Disaster, yeah, Results.
1: never works. Um, yeah. So we're in a situation, you know, ten, twenty, thirty years ago, we would have been talking about some sort of British military response, wouldn't we, James?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's so it's so hard to say. And Ukraine's in this sort of strange situation, not 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 being part of NATO. I think certainly, as you say, it just shows that the historical timeline we thought we were living in, where the where the collapse of the Soviet Union meant. Our journey towards kind of prosperity and democracy. For for Putin, that's not at all that's not at all the version of history he's been living in. That's, you know, that's a great national tragedy and disgrace that he that now needs to be avenged. And hence the situation we're living in. I think we'd become maybe a little bit complacent about our role in history and which direction history was going in. And yeah, we sort of we believe that we could bend the world um to our particular version of where we thought history should be going. And that's just turned out to be something that not everybody agrees with remotely and we, we've turned out to be quite wrong about it, I think. And and
1: I, I suppose it's a sense of powerlessness and it's a bit, you know, that comes on the back of what, what happened with the pandemic that if you're, if you're living comfortably in a country like Britain with enough money, everything is fine. Most things can be solved with a credit card uh, and, uh, I, I'm, and the pandemic taught us that that's not the case. Uh, and, and now this said at sort of the, the top of the programme India, you know war in Europe is a thing that you study at school. Mm. It's not something you expect to see on, you know, in the headlines.
2: No, and that's that's where the kind of feeling of panic comes from, because it's war in Europe with no very obvious solution. Um unless, you know, Ukraine renounce any NATO ambitions that it that it has, which seems to me the only solution and, and not a very satisfactory one. But but yeah, I mean there's no there's no there's no obvious thing, you know, piddly sanctions aren't going to make any difference. As one of your guests earlier was saying, you know, Putin must have been planning this for some time and must have known that piddly or even less piddly sanctions were on the way and must have calculated that it didn't matter. This is the problem when you're dealing with somebody who is determined to do a thing and who doesn't care what you, what, you, what obstacles you lob in their path. They don't care they're going to do it anyway. I think that's why I personally feel really, really anxious because you're you're not dealing with a known beast. You're dealing with somebody who will stop at nothing.
1: India Night and James Marriott Then, of course, you can read India in the Sunday Times. James in the Times, just get yourself a subscription. Go to the times.co.uk forward slash times web box. Up next, some of the best interviews my Times radio show, reacting to the terrible news coming out of Ukraine.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. We were going to bring you a full uh, Times Radio focus group with James Johnson, but talking about Partygate right now seems a little bit eccentric. But in the group we did last night, we did discuss public attitudes towards the situation in Ukraine. So I caught up with James Johnson and asked him about public opinion when it comes to this sort of conflict. What's your, what's the general sense of sort of where public opinion is when it comes to military conflicts?
4: Well, I think certainly, I mean, you know, broadly speaking, there has been a lot of reluctance for... Uh, Western nations to get in, involved in 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 military conflict. Certainly, just last night there was a poll that was released by YouGov of populations in the UK, but also in the US and other countries, showing about a third of people supported uh, military action, but a lot of people saying don't know. A lot of people aren't engaged, and a lot of people uh, saying they didn't. Uh, one thing, though, regardless of the role of uh, Western military, which doesn't really seem to be on the on the cards here. Is that it always does generate a lot of worry amongst the public? Um, now, obviously, you know, just looking at these pictures, even now from from Ukraine, uh, that may may seem like a small issue to be worried in this country. But when the, when I was doing the polling uh, for Theresa May in Downing Street at the time of the Syria strikes, uh, around the time of Salisbury, and indeed, you know, as we saw last night in the Ukraine focus group. You get a lot of concerns about uh, from people about what this might mean for them, what this might mean for their family. People talking about how you know their children have asked them, you know, they're going to be, you know, are, are they going to be missile strikes? You know, to their parents. You know, so it's something that you know affects people, uh, affects people's concerns in the UK as well.
1: Well, let's just take a listen then. This is what uh, the group had to say about the situation in Ukraine. Like I said, it was recorded at seven o'clock last night.
2: As I've got. Um... Children and some grand, a couple of grandchildren that would be of age to, you know, go off to war, and I had nephews and that in, in other, you know, Afghanistan and them sort of places. So it is very concerning, frightening.
4: Don't trust some of the other leaders from the other countries and what they're capable of doing. A massive worry. Are obviously in Plymouth, it's like all the Vanguard submarines, so the nuclear warheads and stuff
5: like that. Um,
3: you've. Everyone's seeing videos of what they can do. It's just possibly world-ending.
5: I think it's inevitable along the line that the uh, United Kingdom is going to have to act. Even it
4: looks like Iraq all over again where we're going to go in and possibly do something and then just we'll try and walk back out.
1: This is something, James, we've, we've heard a lot from people texting and tweeting in this morning. Um, the spectre of Iraq and Afghanistan still hanging over over global politics.
4: Yeah, and it's interesting how you know these support for military intervention over time amongst uh, pub- the public, public opinion does sort of you know, come in ebbs and flows. You, know, you saw quite a lot of resistance to military intervention in the early part of the 90s. Then you saw Rwanda take place where the cost of not intervening really actually led to quite a different view amongst the public on intervention. And then Iraq obviously set that set that right back. And since then, the public have been sort of just about sort of against intervention, but also perhaps more split than they were in the mid-2000s. So, yeah, that Iraq and Afghanistan spectre always hanging hanging over things. But it's interesting, isn't it, listening to those clips, the the British public Mm -hmm. having quite a different conversation to the ones that MPs are in Parliament. The British public often assume that something's going to happen that we're going to be sucked in, uh, which, you know, as I say, you know, even even aerial action seems pretty a, a pretty remote possibility from from Western military in this situation. But the public have sort of already leapt to thinking and worrying that the British Army might get involved.
1: And um, the 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 political. I, mean, I know this is a, a, a side issue, but it, it is part of. Um, uh, the the conversation. One of the things that that I struck me, and we'll, what I think we might try and do is put out some of the the focus group. We'll try and put that out as a podcast at some point, uh, so that people can listen to it because obviously it will um, uh, age with time. But one of the things uh, that stood out when you were asking about Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, Boris Johnson's reputation has clearly taken a huge hit from Partygate. I accept that you know pales into uh, in, in comparison to what's happening right now, but it is part of the the judgement on on the prime minister but one of the really interesting things i thought was the the the, the verdict on Keir starmer and actually um people starting to warm to Keir starmer uh, in part because of his directly because of his reaction to ukraine so far
4: yeah so in last night's focus group obviously caveat needed because it may be that people may have just caught it on the news you know literally before dining Darting into the into the group, um, but uh, about three or four people in the group had noticed Keir Starmer's position on on sanctions. Um, oh, in fact, about...
1: James, I think we've got the clip. Actually, let's okay. just take a listen. Let's take a listen. I'd
4: say he's better than Boris. I he he seems more believable.
5: I think he's potentially sort of showing him showing himself for for what he is after what he said today about sanctions against the the Russian government.
2: I'd definitely say it was a step in
4: the right direction. I'd say he's probably better than Boris, but then also what he said today, uh, I think he's a bit dangerous, a bit like fiery. He seems to be coming out, you know, making more positive noises, but to be honest, that's what they do, isn't it? They just point score. You know, I think they would have come out better trying to do something like that.
5: Yeah, if you'd asked me six months ago, I'd have said, He's a waste of time. But now, like, I've seen him a bit in action. He's a very good speaker. Uh, that's obviously because of his background. But I'm swaying more his way. You know, I, I think this guy's actually got it. If he can get a team together, uh, he he could, you know, he could be a good force, I think.
6: The way he handled, you know, the current situation today was shocking. And that, the fact he just wants to go full force, all guns raised, it's just concerning in itself, and, you know, people backing him for that.
5: I think he's untested, isn't he? Because he's, uh, he's quite new. People are kind of watching his every move. And I think when he said that this morning about the sanctions, I think it was a bit of an eye-opener. So, James, just just
1: finally, that, 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 the point you were just making, making there, that actually uh, Keir Starmer is the one who seems to be in the middle of this crisis positioning himself as a sort of a leader in waiting.
4: Yeah, and I think that taps into two things. Firstly, it taps into it's surprising for them what they see because one of the common criticisms we had of Keir Starmer is you know, he doesn't set out his stall, he doesn't sort of you know set out his plan, and they've seen that and they've responded positively to it. Also, they instinctively think that the sanctions should be really significant. Um, so in one when we asked about it later in the group, one quote was, "You know, sanctions should be massive," and now. Um, uh, rather than uh, uh, sort of uh, pathetic and slow, um, so uh, there is also that desire to see sanctions coming coming through. And just to tap onto what you said, Matt. Finally, you know, the, the Boris Johnson's brand because of Partygate, uh, which we did not see improving at all in this focus group. I think we saw it getting worse. It seems that even when Boris Johnson is talking about Ukraine and and you know sort of delivering uh, you know speeches that might get welcomed by the commentariat. Um, the public are still looking at Boris Johnson and, and sort of seeing him as, as, as weak and, and not the leader they want. And quite frankly, someone they think should have resigned quite a while ago. So it's going to be difficult, I think, politically, even considering the graveness of the situation, for Boris Johnson to escape that.
1: James Johnson then will bring you some of the other clips from the focus group at a later date. Now I want to bring you an interview that I did with Mick Antoniv. He's the Council General for Wales. He's a politician in the Welsh Senate. Uh, and this is what he had to say.
5: I, I am actually shocked. Uh, I've been in tears. I've been emotionally distressed. I've just got back, managed to get out of Kyiv 24 hours ago. Uh, so the scenes that we're seeing are just absolutely distressing. Having phone calls from family members who are now joining their civil defence units, taking up their weapons, uh, trying to look for the safety of of their families who uh, want to head to the border to go to a place of safety now. You know, I had a 74-year-old cousin who I only ever got to know after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I met him first in 1989 as the Soviet Union was breaking up, uh, very close now, 74 years old. Uh, I said, what are you doing? He said, "No, I'm going to stay to the end. So people are getting ready to fight, and uh, that is uh, heartbreaking.
1: And your your connections. Your your father left uh, Ukraine following the Second World War, and that's why you're you're in the UK now.
5: That, that's right. Uh, I, my dad was a refugee from Ukraine. I was brought up in a, a Ukrainian community in Reading. I moved to Wales in uh, in 1973. I regard myself now as Welsh Ukrainian. And of course, many other Ukrainians were uh, in, uh, there was a displaced persons camp in Hawthorne near Pontypridd. Uh, and they went to work afterwards in the mines and they set up communities in St and Morriston. And of course, communities all over the United Kingdom. Uh, so there's a, there's a long standing culture cultural and social link between Ukraine and Wales.
1: And have you been able to contact the people you need to be able to contact this morning?
5: Yeah, I've been uh, in regular contact with uh, with families. I'm a bit worried now because some contacts have got down. I wonder if telecommunications uh, are being hit. But I spoke about an hour and a half ago to uh, two of my cousins uh, the one who basically says look oh, we 're going to get our weapons now and we 're joining our units and uh, we sorted out some arrangements to try and sort out with uh, helping the, the the families there uh, and the other one basically who's, uh who 's a doctor who 's also going to join his unit now they 've been called up as the second reserve list uh, and who 's concerned obviously about uh, his family uh, as as well uh, and i 've been getting from others uh, contacts some have been sending pictures and so on showing the bombings. We know that there have been fighting going on. We know that there are, there are many dead uh, already. Uh, a, a, something this is a situation no one ever expected to see again in Europe since the Second World War. This is a, a, an invasion but also a confrontation with the entire population.
1: Next, I want to bring in an interview I did with Melanie Poldyak. She's a YouTuber based in Ukraine, who I've spoken to several times over the last few weeks, as this crisis has mounted. And I want to catch up with her again to find out what it's like to be in Ukraine right now. Remind us where you are and what's the situation like with you this lunchtime?
6: Um, I'm currently in Lviv, the most Western, the biggest Western city in Ukraine Uh, right now. We've had some shelling this morning, air raids and whatnot. Some of the um, so we're basically 60 kilometres away from the Polish border. So that has to be uh, taken into account. And yet our um, airfields, several of them have been uh, shelled heavily as well as a military base nearby. So it is very tense. Kiev is under uh, constant attack. So the same can be said about uh, many other uh, um, eastern and central cities in Ukraine. So it's, it, the situation is not dire. Our military are giving a proper response to the aggressor, to the Russian military. However, it is di- very difficult.
1: Um, just describe for us, what, when did you realise that it, it started? Were you in bed? Were you woken up? Um, how, how close is it to where you are?
6: Uh, I didn't sleep last night at all because we were sort of expecting something to happen. And then there was this uh, uh, speech with uh, Vladimir Putin where he declared war on Ukraine at like five in the morning. And, and the moment that ended, I got my first notifications about shelling in the eastern parts of Ukraine. And that's when the whole thing just began. So from like five o'clock in the morning, we've been dealing with this situation. Um, it's uh, It has been extremely uh, stressful because we didn't expect uh, these explosions to happen at the same time in Kyiv, in Odessa, in Kharkiv, in Mariupol at the same time. And I can just assume that that was planned way before his statement.
1: And have you uh, got other family elsewhere in Ukraine? Are, you, are all your friends and loved ones safe?
6: Uh, no, not really. So my family is with me, but I have literally sent uh, m- most of my best friends to the military uh, last night before actual Putin's address. We kind of felt something was going on. So we got together, said our goodbyes. And uh, some of the best people I know are currently in Kyiv protecting the city. Uh, The other ones helped uh, their families evacuate. We're expecting them shortly. But uh, all the best men I know currently are uh, enlisting into the military, getting their basic training going on. And uh, another friend of mine, she's a paramedic. She is currently in the east of Ukraine, uh, coming under very heavy fire. I'm still expecting news from her. Um, uh, We're trying to raise money now to buy some uh, equipment for them, medical supplies and whatnot. So we've had our hands full of that.
1: Um, Merlin, I I, I can't imagine what it is you're you're going through and and to have said goodbye to your friends in that way. Uh, We've had so many messages this morning of people saying, how can we... How can Brits pass on their thoughts to uh, to people in Ukraine? So so just know that the people are sending, sending their support to you.
6: We are gra- very grateful for that. We are very grateful for the uh, very promising responses that your government has uh, uh, expressed for us. And we're hoping that, you know, that finally, after all this time, uh, we've discussed this before, sanctions should have been imposed earlier, but now I hope that these sanctions will actually make them hurt a lot because that's the only way they understand um how to actually maybe maybe it's going to change something but for now the situation looks kind of dire
1: An extraordinary interview there with melanie poldiak who is a youtuber based in uh, ukraine and we'll try and catch up with her again in the coming days just to finally round things off daniel finkelstein you'll know he's half a finkelvich you catch him on the podcast every tuesday but he was back today in part to talk again at some more length about his own family ties to ukraine it's where his father is from and also his concern of the sense of powerlessness from liberal democracies. Your reaction, first of all, we, we, we discussed it on the show on, uh, what was it, Tuesday? It feels like a long time ago now. Um, you talked about going to Ukraine. That's where your family are from. Your father fled Ukraine. Yes. How, does it see, how does it feel this morning seeing what's playing out there now? Well, it's heartbreaking and and it's also very worrying because I've made a lot of friends there.
7: I'm working on a book about my parents and while I've been researching it, I've made... A lot of friends, people with an interest in the history of Lviv or Lvov, as my father called it. Because, in fact, although uh, where he was born is now Ukraine, anybody who looks at a map will see that it's right on the border between Poland and Ukraine. And where my father was born there, he was actually Polish. That city was 50% Polish, 25% Ukrainian, 25% Jewish. Um, and um, that gives you an insight into the complicated ethnic history, uh, which Putin is trying to exploit and trying to confuse people about what's really at stake here, making them think that because this uh, history is confused, there's therefore uh, a Russian claim uh, that uh, we Westerners don't understand, whereas President Zelensky of Ukraine correctly says this is about um ukraine's present and its future and when i went there in october and talked to people i could see that this, these these were places that were trying to come to terms with their past in ukraine in in Lviv, there's you know my grandmother was one of seven uh, children she's the only one that survived the war that partly was Fun enough, because she was uh, sent to uh, Siberia by Stalin, her sisters and brothers were murdered by Hitler uh, when he invaded. So it's got a, it's got a very complicated history. Um, but what they're trying to do is understand from that, recover from that, and become uh, modern democracies. And that poses a danger to Vladimir Putin. It's why I think he's
1: decided that he has to invade. Uh, and how, it's one of those things where uh, in the, Past Danny, it would have been ridiculous to ask questions about, you know, being drawn into a full blown European war. But when you've got Vladimir Putin invading a sovereign nation, one that Britain and other countries have built up strong ties with, how bad do you think this could get? Well, it's very bad. I thought the, the, the the big
7: difference, which we don't talk about, is obviously since the Second World War we we've got nuclear weapons and the consequences of a European war are worse still than the consequences of the European war we entered into last time the Nazis and uh, the Soviets invaded Poland Um, it makes you know what was in any case an incredibly difficult and consequential decision almost uh, impossible to make and so therefore if it's something that can still be avoided it has to be simply because its consequences are so monstrous Um, and it does leave one feeling a bit helpless i've seen lots of people you know they kind of decide that um perhaps uh this whole thing will be resolved by um preventing somebody from giving a donation to a Tory party or something you know this just massively underestimates what we're facing those things are not bad to do by themselves by the way um partly because of the, uh, the integrity of our own system and partly because you know it may make a difference and even a small difference is important to make um but it's a lot of it does seem to me like displacement activity which I'm as guilty of as anyone else uh because you know it's very difficult to decide what is to do for the best when someone effectively calls what is what has been a sort of Cold War uh, period bluff, um, you know, in which we don't see people invading uh, independent countries at the moment the the soviet um uh, successor state um russia is sitting as the chairman of the un security council you know the very body that we set up in order to prevent precisely this sort of thing is being headed by the state that does it and that shows what a profound shock this is to uh, the the settlement that we uh, we reached in 1945
1: uh, and I, I suppose it's, it's one of these situations. I was talking to someone. We were talking about this uh, earlier on in the show. The, the pandemic had a similar impact of things which had seemed up until now so completely unimaginable. Um, you know, the pandemic, and now, and now, war in Europe that. You know, we spend our time... I lost you there. Ah, Danny, I think you're back. I think you're back. I was just explaining, we were talking about this uh, a little earlier on the show, that actually we're going through such volatile times uh, that, oh, I think we might have lost uh, Danny altogether. We can still hear him. He can't hear hear us. Oh, no, he's back. He's back. Danny, I was just saying that we're living in such volatile times, and you're right, the displacement activity of the small stuff, sweating the small stuff, if you like, the pandemic, you know, completely turned literally the world on its head, uh, and now war in Europe, too. And we're sort of left wandering, you know, countries like Britain, where we think that, you know, a bit more spending or put it on the credit card and we can solve all, all of life's problems. Th- this, yes. is, this, is, this is just feels unimaginable. And you're left feeling with a power sort of sense of, of, of powerlessness.
7: I think the truth is we're living in what I describe as the post-post-war era. We had a settlement after the war, you know, which were, many of the, the contours of which we were familiar with um, you know the importance of the munich analogy for example the idea that we wouldn't let uh dictators dictate to us um the the kind of uh, increasing prosperity um the the clash between communism and uh democracy in the west even such things as um the creation of the state of israel after the holocaust and all of these things have now come into question um we are now in a in a post post-war era that the contours of politics that we 've understood it all of my adult life are being um, are being questioned I think some of the principles we established are still good ones that we ought to be moving towards an international system of law uh, my my um, my, my Livivian cousin Philippe sands is one of the uh, uh, um, sort of authors of that argument and I think um, you know we had some disagreements over some of it but um, I think he's basically correct um, so you know I don't think we should allow this to throw ourselves completely from uh, from continued progress, even in dealing with the pandemic, we showed the great progress we've made in the last hundred years, um, uh, scientifically. Um, but, um, but certainly this is sort of sobering, the the sort of uh, lengthy period of peace that we've enjoyed, uh, which we assumed would never come to an end. Well, um, you know, it, it, it didn't always exist. And my parents didn't um, uh, have that experience. And, you know, at my, at my 50th birthday, Matt, which was 10 years ago, unfortunately, uh, I said to my guests, um, what happened to my parents has not happened to me. And I can't imagine it happening. And I wouldn't make the
1: same speech on my 60th birthday. Um, that is tragic. Well, Danny, we're now awaiting uh, Boris Johnson's statement to the, the nation in the next couple of minutes or so. What would you you've, – you've written speeches before for prime ministers, you've advised them uh, party leaders and so on. What would you uh, be saying to Boris Johnson this morning as to what he needs to do? I think his speeches have actually been very good. Um, and, and, you know, I would say that I,
7: I personally think the emphasis that we should put should be on assisting Ukraine with its military response – as much uh, as much as it is about trying to um, track down tangential figures whom um, people who don't you know who don't like me actually basically don't really know what these link what their links are think sound Russian uh, and seeing whether we can um, we can freeze their assets you know I'm all for doing that but I think that um unfortunately that that even if even if we were right and those people were connected to Putin, he doesn't seem to be that bothered by it. Um, but I think what will bother him is the internal damage. You know, while we're talking about these assets, the stock market has fallen by 40% in Russia. So I'm afraid, I think, that, that, that the, um, that we're in a war and in that. We have to adjust our sights in that way and, and think how we can assist our allies in that war, which is uh, which are Ukraine, uh, to resist in the way that they can. But all along, we've got to have um, a kind of realistic view about uh, how much, uh, you know, what our freedom manoeuvre is in a circumstance in which our opponent has got nuclear weapons, and so have we. Um, it's extremely worrying to be in that situation, and we have not been in that situation before. So, um, uh, you know, Obviously, that's very sobering. Uh, I, you know, if, if, if I sound at this point as I'm petering out without a convincing final answer, that absolutely is exactly where I find myself. And I don't think we should, I don't think the Prime Minister will be in that much of a different position. So we we should expect clarity of objective. We should expect him to explain why we're in this for the future of world democracy. Um, we should expect him to take some immediate action uh, in terms of sanctions and in terms of Uh, finance, um, but we should also have some understanding um, that uh, we're feeling away a bit.
1: That's Daniel Finkstein there. And, of course, you can read Danny's column in The Times every week and you catch him on the podcast every Tuesday with David Aronovich. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast as ever. We will be back tomorrow, all being well, with the first part of our special new series, The Sunday Shows at 50. But for now, thank you for listening.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk.
6: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.